You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Gina Sario has spent more than 530 nights tent camping in the Mexican wolf recovery area since 1998 and has seen 57 Mexican wolves in the wild. She served on the stakeholder panel for the 2003 Mexican Wolf Recovery Team, on Governor Richardson's Catron County Wolf Task Force in 2005, and as a pre-release pin sitter for the Coronado Pack in 2013. She writes occasional features for the website Lobos of the Southwest, also known as MexicanWolves.org, and gives frequent public outreach programs on the Mexican Gray Wolf. Today, I talked to Jean about her most memorable wolf encounters and what it's like to be among the very few people who have been lucky enough to see so many Mexican gray wolves in the wild. How did all this, all this start? Take us back to the beginning and give us a feel for how you became, you and your husband became such advocates for wolves. It, it really does go back to the beginning for me. Um, I, I was born into conservation and nature study. Um, my parents, my father was the found, one of the founders of the Webster Grove Nature Study Society in St. Louis County, Missouri, um, which was an amateur nature group. And they had different groups, had field trips every weekend, practically. They had ornithology group, botany group, geology, even an astronomy group. My dad was an amateur astronomer, so that was one of his passions. Hmm. Uh, so basically, I grew up with this stuff. Uh, came to the Southwest uh, initially in, I believe it was 1949, uh, when I was six years old um, and visited parts of northern, northern New Mexico, southern Colorado. And so I began to fall in love with the area out here. Uh, came out pretty much every year. And so I was interested in the area. And the wolves came a bit later. I had already always wondered, you know, why weren't there wolves around here? But uh, when I was 30 years old in 1973, and this was a few months before the signing of the Endangered Species Act by President Nixon, I was living in, in Kansas at the time. Peter was in the Army bouncing around all over the place. And uh, my parents came. They had moved to New Mexico. They came and picked me up, uh, and we went to visit relatives. And we went to a Nature Study Society field trip. The, society that my father had been involved in the founding of, and uh, visited a farm, and I can't for the life of me remember the name of the people who owned the place, but they were basically looking after several wolves, gray wolves, um, and a coyote that were in the care of, I think the wolves were probably technically property of, I don't know, Fish and Wildlife Service, I presume, but but uh, and what the deal was with the coyote, I'm not sure. But he, they were babysitting him for a guy named Richard Philip Grossenheider, who was a wildlife artist. And if you have an old edition of the field guide to Peterson Field Guide to the Mammals, this guy did the illustrations. Mm. He's a friend of my father's. And if you can find a copy of that book, 
get, get it because the illustrations are fantastic. Um, so anyway, the short part of it is that I met these animals. I was able to hold the coyote, got pictures taken. Uh, the wolves were in a couple of pens, but I became interested in them. And right around that time, there was a, a beginning to be a lot of interest in wolves and possibilities of perhaps restoring them to Yellowstone and that kind of thing. That, that stuff was starting to rattle around in the conservation community. So that's how I got interested. Uh, I started reading up on them, but we did a lot more bouncing around the world, lived in Germany again for a while and so on and so forth. So when we came back, Peter went to law school in Kansas City, Missouri. I taught school for about 10 years roughly there. Uh, I was an elementary teacher. My students had to hear a little bit about various animals and do little activities and probably heard more about wolves than they ever wanted to hear. <laughs> but uh, we ended up uh, moving to New Mexico. We thought we were going to Albuquerque, but we wound up in Las Cruces, which was great because my parents were up in Silver City and they actually lived, you know, about a mile from the edge of the Gila Forest and wolf country. It was before the reintroductions began when they moved down here. But by the time we moved down here, it was 1995. Things had already occurred or were occurring in Yellowstone. And within three years, they started reintroducing them down here. Tell me about camping with Lobos, with the consistency that you and your husband have over the years. Yeah, we've, we've become a bit obsessed, and uh, the inability to get out there very much right now is, is a problem. When we moved down here, and once the wolves were reintroduced, actually in 1998, we took a little sort of pilot trip. Um, we, we drove around the outer loop road, which kind of goes around this, the, a good chunk of the Gila National Forest and definitely encompasses where the, the wilderness is. Um, we drove around there, and then over into Arizona, uh, camped a few nights over on the Arizona side where the wolves, the few that were left were. This was in the fall, about September, I believe, of 1998. And by that time, as you may know, um, many, several of the wolves had been killed illegally. Some others had been removed from the wild for nuisance behavior and this kind of thing. So there were practically none of them left. Later that year, they had put a couple of the males into uh, pens where, with new females because a couple of the females were, one just disappeared and I think another was shot. I can't recall right this minute. But they had put these animals into pens and were getting ready to put the female in with the hawk's nest male. And I got wind of this long story, um, and went up, picked up my parents in Silver City. Peter was still working at the time, and I was not gainfully employed. So I picked, picked up my elderly parents, drove over to Arizona, and got there just a little too late to see them take the female down. But I did get to hear uh, the Secretary of the Interior, Bruce Babbitt, say that um, grazing was not not one use to be exalted above all others, and that this program was not over. So huh. we, we took that as a, a good sign. And the following year, we went out and camped above the pen where they had put those wolves the year before. And they had had some pups in the pen. They had since been released. 
And we found a camp spot and then went to the area where they, the state police and all had been parked when they did that release, when they, they put the wolves in the pen and got ready to do the release the following year. And when we got there, there was a Fish and Wildlife Service law enforcement officer out there at the, at the highway. And we asked if it was okay to go down there. Um, and he said, yes, they, the biologists had just opened the pen and removed the closed signs. They had had a, like a closure around the den. And at this point, the wolves were, were out of there. And yes, it was okay to go down there. So we went on down. And when we got there, we looked at the pen, and that was pretty interesting just to see it. And then we noticed that there were some tracks in the road, uh, dried. The road had been muddy and was now dry. And there were tracks that definitely were way too big to be coyote tracks uh, and were not associated with a bunch of human tracks. So they were pretty obviously wolf tracks. Also found a large scat. We were so innocent of how to do stuff at that point that we didn't have, I don't think we even had a six inch ruler with us. So mm. I used my binoculars, you know, to give a scale for the photos that I took. As we were walking back to our vehicle, we heard some couple of deep, the, the classic uh, deep throaty howls from the south wall of the canyon of, of the Campbell Blue and looked up and I saw like a half a wolf face behind a tree like some of those posters you may have seen, or yeah. lowering. and Peter says that he saw uh, the the animal howled a couple of times and then bolted, ran east among the ponderosas, and Peter said he basically saw fur moving east. But that was our first sighting of a Mexican gray wolf. When we got back to the the road, we asked the the officer. He had a telemetry receiver, and he was able to pinpoint that the animal that we had seen was the male, 131, whose name was Masca. He was named that at the what was then the Wild Canid Survival and Research Center. It's now called the Endangered Wolf Center in St. Louis County, which was a place where we had visited and we had been supporting for quite some time. So it was really, really fun to see him. And so that was our first experience. And after that, we've gone back out every single year uh, either both together or in some cases I've gone uh, taken groups of women out, sort of set up some women's wolf trips, which were great fun. And actually on one of those, way back in uh, 2003, when I was out with two other women over in Arizona, we saw four probable blue stem animals sort of mosey up the hill, not too far from us, maybe a, a hundred meters. Um, um, again, we could see them in and out among the trees. And the more we did this, the more we got hooked. <laughs> it was, it's somewhat addictive after you see them. And you have to spend a little time out there. The more nights you spend camping where wolves are, the more of them you're likely to hear or see. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. 
Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. Wow. So some people follow the Grateful Dead and they take it further than the average fan uh, (laughs) typically does. And that's why it's so fascinating to talk to you because, um, and I love the way that you started out just, you didn't know an awful lot. You didn't know what you were supposed to do to take a photo of a track properly or, or all of those things that were so new to you and, and that experience and then how you got hooked. I mean, I think that seeing half a wolf face around a tree trunk, I, as you were telling this story, I just felt like that's the spark must have just happened right there for you. Um, tell us a little bit more about that feeling and, and any other times, any other, all the other sightings that you must have had over all these years. Yeah, it's really hard to pick because we've had so many really interesting experiences. One thing I want to make very clear is we are not particularly, um, we're we're not great backpackers. We've done a little bit of it. Um, By the time we even got down here, you know, we were both uh, over 50 and Peter was still working. Um, The year 2000, we went back. The Hawk's Nest experience with 131 that I explained with the the half-faced wolf uh, was in late October of 1999. In late October of 2000, the Francisco pack, which consisted of that poster wolf that you've probably seen if you've seen a lot of Mexican wolf stuff, um, and she's a a real beauty. Um, Mm. That wolf and a mate that they had paired her up with, and one of, of two yearlings plus four pups were running around in the vicinity of just north of the Bear Wallow Wilderness in Arizona, around the area of Double Cienega. Anyway, we had started off a trip in late October intending to backpack down into the Bear Wallow, hike up the the stream. The wolves were upstream from there, and they had been in and out of the wilderness and mostly north of it. We were talking to the nice uh, lady in the ranger station in Alpine, the, the Forest Service gal, and she mentioned that the the project people had a, a trailer and a couple of kids, uh, what they called volunteers then, I think they call them interns now, at Double Cienega, and maybe we'd like to go down there and maybe we'd see something, and maybe they would talk to us. So we, being reasonably brash folks, um, First, we had to inquire where Double Cienega was, and then we found out it was where we had sort of intended to go in the first place. So we went down and camped. We set up our tent. Meanwhile, we bought a tarp, put that over our little tiny backpacking tent we were using in those days. And we talked briefly with the kids who were were staying there in the trailer and and babysitting the wolves a bit. They'd been having some trouble with hunters. Uh, somebody was kind of howling them in and they were getting a little too cozy with people. So they were trying to get rid of, you know, make sure they moved out of the way. Uh, these kids told us that they were off off shift, but there would be some other folks coming in that night. So we uh, settled down. And first thing that happened as we were crawling into our tent was we heard very loud and relatively close wolf howls. We had seen quite a few tracks in the snow, um, so we knew they were somewhere around, but this made it really very obvious that they were there. And then during the night, we heard some more howling. So next morning, I was 
cooking breakfast and we I looked up and only about 150 meters away at the edge of the woods at this big cienega, which is the, the big wet meadow, um, an open area, grassy, uh, there were a total of seven wolves. The female, the poster wolf, her mate, who was another big, pretty robust looking wolf, one yearling, the other one had dispersed over into New Mexico and was sadly shot not too long after this, and then the four pups of the year. Uh, and the puppies were kind of, you know, they were rolling around and acting like typical puppies. Um, and we're watching this and absolutely stunned. The young interns weren't up yet, so we went, I went over and kind of knocked on their door of the trailer and said, hey, we have a visual out here. You may want to come out. Wow. So they, they proceeded to do so. Anyway, we we established a pretty nice relationship with these folks, and we were actually able to ride along with them. Um, we, we rode with them and saw what they did, and then well, when we were along the way, we stopped to, they were trying to get some telemetry readings uh, on the, the, the um, Francisco pack, and as we're standing there and they're trying to get a reading, they're just, you know, checking out the wilderness first, that direction. And then just about the time they're going to turn around, the wolf, a wolf, and it was probably the male up on the hillside, howled very loudly. And this is like 10 o'clock in the morning, which is, you know, wow. it was different. And then later that same day, we saw three members of the Cienega pack at a different location, and they we were able to watch them. They were going along the edge of a, a meadow with a bunch of horses in it, and the horses didn't seem to pay any attention to them, and they didn't pay any attention to the horses. So that was that was the experience that I think sealed sealed our doom as being totally addicted to going out and checking out these guys, and we've. I've seen, what, about 50 of them since then. We know uh, very well what our own Dave Parsons says about his experiences with wolves and why the Mexican wolf is so important. In so many different ways, there's so many ways to attack that. What are you talking about? Biologically, spiritually, whatever. I'm going to leave that up to you, but I want to know from you, with this much exposure that uh, very, very few people in the world have with wolves of any kind, with that many sightings living in their country. What is it about wolves for you? Why are they so important? Part of it is that I did grow up in a family that were very concerned about, about nature and about preservation of both wild places and wild critters. So I, I grew up with those values. So it's always been important to save endangered species, whether they be animals or plants or whatever, to preserve places that are important ecologically. I mean, it drives me crazy when I look at Facebook or I hear on the news that the administration in this case, but they're not the first to do these things, um, are opening some priceless area to to drilling or mining or you know letting them continue grazing where it's absolutely obviously not appropriate 
I was involved, and we have been involved in commenting on every every action relating to Mexican wolves, including uh, I I actually went and spoke in Silver City and in Reserve on translocating wolves into the Gila, into New Mexico, because remember at first, if, if you followed the Mexican wolf program, new releases were allowed only in a small area in Arizona, and they were trying to do an environmental analysis to allow them to go ahead and take wolves that had had their little paws on the ground in Arizona and then move them into the Gila. They actually, I don't think, needed to do that. I believe they actually had that ability, but they did it in order to, you know, dot all the I's and cross all the T's. Uh, went up to Silver City and did those two nights in a row, got up and testified, got heckled by the cowboys in reserve the first night. And um, so that was kind of my introduction to NEPA analyses. And since then, we've uh, done comments on every major action, uh, including, you know, five-year review, three-year review, five-year review. So we've done that kind of stuff. So it's more than just because I like wolves. You know, there I, I know there are a lot of people who are are very, especially a lot of women, are, I think, are kind of connected to them. Like most most uh, groups that, that deal with wolf issues will probably tell you that, that women tend to to outnumber the men frequently in, in some of these uh, wolf issues. But uh, it's, it's more than that. It, it relates to their, their role in ecosystems as major carnivores. I've always been a bit of a, one who would root for the underdog. The wolf really is kind of a, the quintessential underdog. Uh, I think part of it is wanting to stand up for the underdog and also to demystify wolves. Uh, I've camped not only with Peter, but I've camped a number of nights, and it's not hundreds of nights alone, but I have camped alone starting in 2004 in wolf territories, and I've heard them howl from my tent when I was alone and have never felt threatened in any way. Um, you know, they're not out there lurking and lusting after Little Red Riding Hood, or they're certainly not going after 60 or 70 some odd year old women. <laughs> I'll tell you that mm. much. You know, I, I took a couple of trips with with some women. I, I organized small trips. They were like three or four people. And we went out looking for wolves. And as I say, on the first one of those trips in 2003, uh, two other women were with me, and we actually got to see these wolves relatively close up and also cast their tracks and this kind of thing. So I think these are women who, you know, one was single, one was old, old, relatively old, even older than I was. She was in, well into her 60s at the time. And neither of these people had anybody to go out with them. You know, they didn't have a boyfriend or a husband, so... So I said, you know, maybe we, we had been at a, a meeting uh, testifying for, for wolves. On our way back from that trip, I said, why don't we, since you, you two don't have anybody to go with you, why don't we just make a trip, you know, and uh, agree to a time and go do this? So we did. And then we did that again. And I have since also gone out with other women a couple of times. On one occasion, I was hiking with a friend who, who lives now up no, it, not far from Alpine. We saw wolves, and I got some of the best wolf photos I've ever gotten of those wolves. 
we were just sitting down eating our lunch, watching the the scene in front of us, and these critters showed up and walked past us. And then when they finally, when a, a wind changed and they got our, our wind, they took off. And the female, uh, who was obviously lactating at the time, had pups nearby, um, howled and, and made a bit of a ruckus as she went. So she let us know that we probably didn't belong there. It's amazing to me how often you've started a story just today that, See, I think a lot of people would think of someone like you, you and your husband and people like you uh, to be very purposeful, uh, friendly wolf hunters who have a system and a way of getting in the path of wolves so that you have uh, an increased chance of sightings. And, and in a sense, that's what you're talking about. But also, I'm struck by the happenstance nature of the stories you tell about these encounters that are so often, I w- we were just eating lunch or we were just doing this and it just happened. And I think a lot of people would be struck by that, that, that there's not a more, I mean, I know that there's a more purposeful way to put yourself um, in proximity of wolves, but I think you're telling a different story. You just have to spend the time and you're not really going to be in control all the time of when these encounters happen, but they will if you're in the right place and you spend enough time in the right place, right? Essentially, that is correct. Let, let me just give you a statistics. I've, I, I have little yellow write-in-the-rain notebooks that I carry. You know, one, mm-hmm. I have one on all trips. I didn't start doing that till 2004, so I had to do some extrapolation backwards. But I'm pretty sure that I can safely say that 529 is a conservative estimate of the number of nights I personally have spent camping in occupied wolf home ranges, or at least where they they would be likely to be, not not far away from there. You know, I wasn't 20 miles away. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there's no way to know where they're going to be at a given time or a given day. You know, they do put up some location maps online. Sometimes I think they probably shouldn't, but, they're you know, other times I'm grateful that they do because it'll sometimes get us in the vicinity. So we got 529 nights camping in a tent, um, but I've seen 57 wolves, and they're not all separate wolves. Some of these were the same wolves at a different time. Mm-hmm. So 57 wolves, 529 days. That's, you know, that's a lot of days per wolf sighting. Right. (laughs) You put in the work. I think it's not so much science. It's just making sure that you've put yourself in the right place and then being willing to come back empty handed more often than not, which is such a great allegory to the life of any predator. They, they go to the refrigerator and come back empty handed way more than they ever come back with something to eat. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. And in fact, we watched that and this is one of my other favorite stories. And we were camped up on Terry flat on Escudilla mountain, which is uh, those who know that San County Almanac will know about Escudilla. Mm -hmm. There's an extension of Escudilla mountain to the South that is basically kind of a big basin uh, uh, with a Patty Creek going down through it. And we were camped up there and the Elkhorn pack was denned up somewhere around Escudilla, but not right up there. 
but we knew it was it's a good place to camp because one of the things you do is you kind of feng shui your camp you know you put yourself with woods behind you and probably a water source at a distance in front of you don't get too close because you don't want to scare things away from it but paddy creek's pretty far down in the in the valley so you're camped against the trees so that you're not conspicuous and then you just hang out you know and we were having breakfast um, it was kind of a hazy morning. Uh, there were some fires in June in New Mexico, and the, the smoke had drifted over. So we didn't have a real good view of things. But we were sitting there, and we had seen a couple of the wolves in the valley a couple of days before, and I got one or two photographs. But at this time, the wolves came into the valley, five of them. And it was probably the alpha male and a couple of yearlings. Um, and they came into the valley and they sort of moseyed up to a spot that was probably a, about a kilometer from our location, certainly at least 900 meters. It was a, quite a distance. I don't have much of a camera, so, so uh, his was, it was a, a challenge to my camera when I did finally snap a few shots. But the wolves hung around and they kind of had a couple of elk came along. Um, the, the wolves just kind of got up and kind of moved in their direction a little and formed kind of like a T formation sort of thing and moved towards them. The elk stood their ground and the wolves sort of gave up and went back. And they all one by one lay down in the vegetation near the creek and just hung out. And they were, it was probably, I'd have to look up the exact timing, but it was probably close to an hour. We got some more coffee and sat there in our, the shade on our chairs and um, watched these things just snoozing. After probably about an hour, a cow elk appeared up above on the ridge up where the wolves were, there was a side drainage that comes in, and it was kind of grassy as well, so you could see well there. The, we noticed that she had a calf with her, and she was just kind of grazing, and, and the calf was there. And for some unknown reason, the calf took off and started down the hill directly to where all these wolves were snoozing. I mean, this is, this is drama really <laughs> set up here. And one by one, the wolves got up. Mom is bolting after Junior, and I think she was probably as blown away by this as anybody. And she kept going. The, the baby went across the valley, past the wolves, and up into the woods on the other side. Somewhere along the way, a second cow elk joined them. Then she peeled off, and Mom and Junior disappeared with five wolves on their tail. Uh, about six or seven minutes later, and we clocked this on purpose to see how long it would be, the wolves one by one returned. And two or three of them came down into the valley and sort of lay down. I guess they were pretty winded by this experience. Eventually, a couple of them went back up the hill. One of them came down past us and then proceeded to get in the water, then he got up and shook himself, and then eventually wandered up onto the other side of the valley and disappeared. Nobody got anything to eat out of that experience. 
And it was a perfect example of exactly what you're talking about. They go to the larder, but there's nothing there. Or if it's there, it's smart and manages to outmaneuver them or it fights back. And we've, there have been wolves, including a few in this reintroduction, that have actually been badly injured and I think in one case actually died from wolf injured, from uh, elk injuries, you know, of being gored or whatever. And incidentally, the only time I've ever been afraid of a wild animal was when I was hiking with a young woman that we were out camping and she was trying to make some video footage and a big bull elk and two young males, they were apparently following after six or seven cow elk that we saw run up the uh, north side of the road. They came down the south side of the road right towards us and didn't turn off until they were about 30 feet away. That is That time I thought, you know, I was watching my life go before my eyes because if they had run into us, we would have been in really bad shape if not dead. So that was a little scary. So I do recommend people watch out, you know, ungulates. And I've been told since that elk can't see in front of themselves very well. So he probably didn't even see us. I would love to, I just think this is the most fantastic vision, uh, to sit around a campfire with you, your husband and Dave Parsons and listen all night long to the stories that uh, that will be told around that campfire, I think that would be the most amazing thing. I wish we were there now. I bet our listeners do too. But <laughs> unfortunately, we have to call it a day today. But I think this also means you're just going to have to come back and continue this uh, at a later time. And I thank you so, so much for taking the time uh, to be on Rewilding Earth today. You are most welcome. It was a great pleasure, and maybe I'll write you a few articles. How's that? Absolutely. In fact, I'm going to have to hold you to that now since you offered. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.